There's almost nothing better than a well-written story. How we can actually enter a whole other world through a well-written narrative, is it's, it's a wonder. I mean, think of some of the great books out there, some of my favorites, The Life and Times of Martin Luther. Exciting title, I know. But it, it's a selection of actual facts and peoples and words that were spoken and events, and it's woven together to shine a light into an age that would otherwise be completely dark to us. Two years before the mast is a similar work, except it's a single man's experience in a setting that few could comprehend, really. Dumas, a privileged gentleman, lived as a working man, a sailor, for two full years. It's really an astonishing work. Every time I read it, I have to remind myself that it is true history. And there are other kinds of well-written stories. Consider Uncle Tom's Cabin, perhaps the greatest extra-biblical work I've ever read. Now, it's strange because it's not actually a history of a single man, but a gathering of true stories about many men and women woven together as if it were the experience of a single man. Each piece of the story is true, but it's a compilation of stories fitted together to show the towering spiritual fortitude of a single man, Uncle Tom. No person Uncle Tom ever existed, but many, many great saints of our Lord Jesus Christ suffered, even as slaves, and yet shined as Uncle Tom did. And then there are those works that are entirely suppositional truths. How would we respond if life was like this? Offerings, commonly called fictions. I actually wrote one like this myself. What if the food that we commonly, regularly eat became indigestible? What if our government suffered a slow but inexorable financial collapse? How would various people live in such a world? Kind of fun to consider and maybe helpful. I don't know. But let me give you an example of a justifiably more famous work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's right. We like that book. C.S. Lewis' work proposed an entirely different world and placed four young English children of the World War II era into this new world to see how they would prove themselves against good and evil in a dramatically, excitingly different setting. All right. There's a point in this uh, soliloquy on some of my favorite works. You see, the life and times of Martin Luther recorded the greatest change in the history of the world since the time of Christ. And many hearts have been changed reading of the admirable courage it took to stand against a corrupt and very fake church swollen to the status of an empire. Dumas wrote two years before the mast as an expose of the horrible abuses ship's captains regularly inflicted on their sailors. The force of law gave them full tyrannical rights over their crews, even granting them the right to execute men at will. 
a right they unfortunately availed themselves of for the slightest offense. In one case, a man spoke back to the captain and was executed. Some of these things the wealthy, privileged Umaha personally witnessed. So he came back, he poured himself into study, specifically becoming a lawyer, so that he could write laws to free sailors. He wrote his book to bring this horrible issue before the people. And it worked. He changed laws throughout the world. And in case you don't know, Abraham Lincoln himself said that Mrs. Beecher, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, did much more to free the slaves than he did. (laughs) But what about those suppositional truths, the entirely made-up stories? Well, of course, they're really not. There's always a germ of truth. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe introduced the concept of a savior, Aslan, the mighty lion, without people having to face that direct truth of Jesus Christ as savior. (laughs) And a great many people have found their way from Aslan to Christ through this propositional truth. These books changed the world. All of them. They are recollections, recreations, and just creations for a purpose. Much of the Bible is stories. Narration rather than, you ready for your word of the day, didactic literature. Didactic literature is great, especially for guys like me, because it is so direct. Do this, don't do that. Speak this way, but not like that. Live this way, not that way. They're easy. They're straightforward. And they appeal directly to the mind. But so very often, (laughs) it is not the intellect that needs addressing. It's not logic, but volition that matters. People know how to live. They just don't want to. (laughs) Stories aim more at the heart than they do the mind. Not so much how to live as giving a reason to live as we should. I know accuracy with facts and even the purpose can be open to interpretation with stories. Uh, There's a much wider discussion of Jesus' parables. What do they mean than with his direct teaching? On the one hand, that's the problem with stories. (laughs) How, How do we learn? On the other hand, it's their very advantage. Our hearts are involved in the process, so we are much more likely to respond than we might be to direct teaching. The Bible contains lots of narration stories. Some, like parables, are fully fiction. Uh, Propositional truths designed to get people to think about why they live how they live. But most of these stories, like all those we'll consider today, are records of other people's lives, the words safely inspired by God so that we can learn from them with our hearts as well as our minds. The focus of these stories, well, only the most important thing there is to know, how do people find their way to Christ? These are examples of how it happens. Maybe today we'll see ourselves in these men and maybe we'll learn to Introduce others to Christ. Let's start with the easy way. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? 
They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. Most of those who became believers at the time of Christ were already um, in the system. They believed under the old system and so simply had to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. But, then again, there were those simply raised in the old system who didn't yet believe. Similar to what often happens today and was common for most of the last century in America. It's the well-functioning nuclear Christian family where parents bring their children to church all their lives. The children trust their parents and their Christian teachers. So the transition from belief in their elders to belief in Jesus, the Jesus their elders believe in, that's not difficult. It's made with relative ease. These kind tend to be polite and respectful. You notice they said teacher. That's a very respectful term in that society. And you notice they didn't say, hey, can we come stay with you? <laughs> no, they, they very politely asked Jesus, um, where are you staying? And then they wait and let him invite them. In other words, they know all about courtesy and how to act in what situation, all that wonderful cultured stuff. So let's just say it blatantly. These are the easy ones, okay? <laughs> that is the easy way to come to Christ. Uh, they tend... Okay, we're going to analogize the scriptures probably too much. <laughs> they tend to stay. They don't stray far from Jesus very often. Now, we should point out that there are a plethora of folks living the Christian life who have no relationship to Christ. Jesus himself said at the end, he will say to some churchgoers, I never knew you. So, but we're not talking about that. We are talking about people with real belief a truly Christian worldview. This is, sadly, this whole idea of bringing people easily to Christ. It's not as common now in our country. A lot of people never been to church, don't know anything about it. And besides all that, frankly, there isn't just a whole lot for us to do. The parents have already done the job. We don't. So let's go on to someone more interesting to us, the seeker's way. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Andrew's statement makes it very clear. They were looking for a Messiah. Okay? So they had some idea. They know the world is in trouble and needs some help. They don't, as Abraham Lincoln thought many northerners in his age did. They don't live as if everyone is an angel. They know better than that. They had a realistic view of the condition of the world. In fact, they know they are in trouble and need some help. We would say they understand, A, admit you're a sinner. In fact, they're looking for someone in whom to be, believe, willing to see, commit their lives to him. And do note, by the way, that God uses agents. Nathaniel brought Peter. We can bring people and actually be a part of the salvation of another person. Today, in this time that we live, you can ask a person, do you think we are all on a spiritual journey? And probably they'll say, you know, I, I kind of do. 
Now, they, they may be only mildly interested in Christianity, but they might come to a Christian event, say, like our fifth Sunday experience we do, or even, even a Sunday morning service. Do you think we are all on a spiritual journey? You might have someone say, yeah, I'm really trying to figure out this whole spiritual thing. Man, you can give them a Bible. We, we have lots of them. Grab one. Chances are they'll actually read it. You can give them literature. You can point them to our website. You can bring them to class. They want to know. They are active seekers. You might run into that. A bit more about this spiritual journey thing. Even when we believe, we are still on a journey. And it's wonderful to realize that Jesus knows who we are and who he wants us to become and that he'll get us there just like he did with Peter. You see, Peter's name isn't Peter. <laughs> well, it wasn't Peter. It was Simon. Jesus changed it to Cephas, which in Greek is Peter, which is in English rock. Simon, I want you to be rock. I want you to be the rock that all the other disciples lean on. I want you to lead my church. That's what he was saying. And Peter did have some mountaintop experiences, high times, <laughs> low times. You know, he walked on the water, but then he sank. <laughs> he realized who Jesus was, but then Jesus called him Satan. <laughs> That's not too good. He defended Jesus in the garden with a sword, but then he ran and denied him and slunk away. Jesus challenged Simon with a new name, Peter, rock! And lo and behold, he actually became the leader of the apostles and the entire church. He did it after Jesus rose from the dead. Eventually, he even died for the Lord he had once denied. Peter lived up to his name. Now, we have, thankfully, not been asked to be an apostle. Okay. Probably not going to have to be killed. And we haven't been certainly been asked to be their leader. But we are asked to be his agents to do his work. And he will challenge those who come to him. I mean, think, if Peter's life was just fine, thank you, you know, he wouldn't need to be challenged. But none of us are fine. <laughs> We need a Savior, and we need to be challenged. And Jesus will do that. So be prepared. And that's kind of a bit outside of our focus today, so let's get back. <laughs> let's go on to part three, path three, the direct way. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. <laughs> Sometimes people will, Jesus will just call people directly. Now, it's uncommon, but let's not say it's impossible. You know, wait a minute, you weren't saved in church? Well, no, God just impressed on me that I had to follow Christ, so I did. You didn't go to a Billy Graham crusade or anything like that? No, God just reached out and told me. Are you sure you're saved? <laughs> I want to know. And, and I'm not sure how many can actually do this, how many could really respond this way. And, of course, we, we've got to be cautious in accepting those who say they are directly called. There are some very strange people out there. <laughs> but if we see in their lives the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, then we can be pretty sure this is real. 
And this all takes time, both developing the Spirit's fruit and observing a person so that we can determine if they genuinely live Spirit-controlled lives or are just faking it. But if we watch over them, over time, we can be pretty sure. And now we get to a really interesting group. Path for the skeptic's way. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now you may be thinking, like I was, how much this sounds just like what Andrew said. In fact, maybe Philip heard the story from Peter and Andrew and thought, hey, I'll try that too. The result? Well, I don't think it's quite what he'd hoped for. Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Kind of bad. Skeptics, and Andrew is barely one, they can be pretty caustic. Don't let it get to you. Be patient, even though it isn't easy. And did you know skeptics attack the person? Where's the legitimate question? What is it that you see in Jesus that makes you think that he's the one that Moses and all the prophets wrote about? No. He said, he's a loser. He's from Westport. Okay, Nazareth. You know, I mean, that's what he says. How many times have you heard skeptics attack Christians with actual facts? You know, probably zero to none. You just don't do that. But we have to ignore these side issues and we have to stick to the facts. And often they'll question the very idea. What do you mean, a Savior? You think I need saving? (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Actually, as you mentioned. Rose from the dead. What kind of stupid person are you? Well, you just smile. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Whatever evasive tactic they might use, you need to patiently answer them. For instance, they might get all sidetracked with silly details. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Just keep coming back to ground zero, like Philip did. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Just show them Jesus. Bring them to Jesus. Now, you may make mistakes like Philip did. Did you catch that? He said, Jesus, the son of Joseph. Well, Philip, that's not really accurate. See, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so Joseph isn't really technically his father. Yeah, yeah, so he makes a mistake. It's not really right... But if we bring them to Jesus, all that can be straightened out later. (laughs) It's okay to make mistakes. Just try anyway. In fact, if you haven't made any mistakes talking to someone about Christ, you're probably not trying hard enough. So get on the stick. Do it. Come on. (laughs) And if it's all you can do just to invite them to church, do that, okay? Now maybe don't say, hey, you want to come to a Sunday service? We worship together and listen to a sermon. (laughs) Now, for you and me, we know what that means. It's wonderful. But those are kind of weird words for a person not used to them. How about this? Hey, would you like to come to our church with me on Sunday? Church? Yeah, we all get together. We kind of have a little mini concert. Most of the time, we even sing along. And 
Then we have a kind of a seminar or class where, where we learn how to live life better. Hey, that might work. Who knows? Hey, you want to come to Sunday school with me? <laughs> yeah. Maybe our Sunday morning discussion group. Maybe that would work a little better. And then the midweek Bible study. It's great for me, but how about Wednesday word study? That's what we've been calling it. A time when we examine the writings of those who started Christianity. That might work. A little easier thing is the fifth Sunday experience or an outreach event like the community picnic all the churches are putting down at the end of the summer. Most people, even skeptics, are open to that. Free food's always a good one. But always offer them a Bible. I mean, they can read it in the privacy of their homes and they can make up their own minds. Now, do let them know that this is a collection of writings that we believe the Creator of all things arranged for us to have. Okay, we think it's that important. Tell them that we believe it is by the renewing of our minds that we develop faith. These are things you should tell them. Ask them to read just a part of it and then give you their thoughts. I'd have them start with John or maybe Mark or Luke, something like that. If they tell you, oh, it's all foolishness anyway, challenge them to read it and find the problems they say are in it. Not, not go to the internet and do some Google search, okay? Now, challenge them to actually read it and firsthand find out what they think for themselves. Not somebody else's old rehashed thoughts. What do you think? And then, if they really love anyone, if you really love anyone, and want them to know Christ, the best thing to bring them to Jesus is by living Jesus before them. Live on purpose. If we truly believe our lives are not an accident, then we should quit living our lives as if it is an accident. You know, if your language stinks, well, clean it up. It's not hard. Just do it. If you told lies, get honest. Actually, remember what we, what we said to watch the fruit of the Spirit in anyone to see if they really live up to a relationship with Christ? Here's what the Apostle Paul said about wrong living just before that. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What a list. Wow. How could they see Jesus in us if we are acting like that? How can your family trust your spiritual walk if you are involved in activities like this? Live right by living as the Holy Spirit instructs in all the Scriptures and some around you will naturally fall into the arms of Christ. It will happen. And here's a fun thing to watch, the fall of the skeptic. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now, there's a whole miracle thing going on with Jesus, knowing where he was and what he was doing, even what he was reading. But for those you love now, it will be all about them seeing Jesus. Maybe through you. Maybe through someone else you bring them to. Maybe in the words of Scripture. And when a skeptic believes, they usually believe big time. (laughs) 
Sometimes I think it's because they are so thick-headed, Jesus had to hit them with a really big stick and like, you know, a major tragedy. And it, and it, it completely makes them change direction. Okay? Or maybe it's because they've worked through so many major questions before they come to faith, they are so much more sure of their faith. You know, maybe we ought to question more. Maybe we ought to get a little uncomfortable in our faith so that we can be more confident in our faith. You know, no more same old, same old. Let's actually learn the Scriptures, which is why we have all the classes we do, why we're here today. There's one other path that some take to get to Jesus. It isn't common that people who start this path make it, but some actually do. There is uh, one other book I'd like to tell you about, The Persecutor. It's a focused biography of a man named Sergei Kortokov. Sergei's job in the old Soviet Union was to harass, arrest, and even beat Christians. And worse. How could one ever hope that such a man could possibly turn to Christ? But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So infamous had Paul's actions become that on the other end of a mountain range, way past Galilee in Damascus, People had heard of him, and even that he was coming their way. <laughs> and God asks one of those very people in that church in Damascus to go help that guy out. <laughs> but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. What a reputation. And like Ananias obviously is, we should ask what in the world would drive such a man to such violent reaction against those who follow Jesus Christ? Speaking of the high priest and his entourage, the very man says, they have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Those willing to be persecutors are passionate about what they believe. You know, that we were that passionate. <laughs> Today's persecutors are passionate about their religion, whether it be Islam or militant evolutionary atheism or something else. Powerful, compelling emotions are not in and of themselves negative. But what are we to think when they are willing to go to these lengths? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Raging fury. Sergei Kordokov told of his team breaking up Christian meetings in raging fury and beating the participants, sometimes until they died. Young, old, male, female, it made no difference to them. And that's not the worst he tells. This is not a book a child should read, in case you were wondering. 
Well, none of those I've mentioned are really, <laughs> except for the land, the witch, and the wardrobe. A prime description of what drives persecutors is revealed in Jesus' accusation against Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What? Kick against the goads? What does that mean? Well, first, what's a goad? Physically, it's a sharp stick that one uses to prod animals, in particular those who will not cooperate, to get them to go where you want them to go. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't saying he's been poking this man with a stick. Okay, he's not saying that. So what are the goads that Jesus was using? We get a hint from something this very man wrote later after he began to use his Roman name Paul rather than his Jewish name Saul. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being perished, who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. It was the people the followers of Jesus Christ that Paul was punishing were the goads. One of the reasons we gather together as believers is that we remind each other of the eternal life we will share together. You know, what a wonderful thing! But to those who are perishing, when we stand for Jesus Christ, we are a goad to remind them that death is their lot if they do not repent. They don't always like that. Some of them may kick against, persecute us. Some animals, rather than going where they are supposed to, kick against the goats. I don't know if you've ever seen them loading cattle. Some of them kick. And what do you think the rancher will do? Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul became Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Just like all the other men whose conversions we've considered. They were all special cases, but Paul was even a little more special Ananias was really concerned about following God's instruction to help Saul. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The persecutor will suffer. Sergei Kordakov was haunted in his dreams because of the reactions of the believers to the torture he inflicted on them. In particular, one young woman who, after two different intense beatings, they found at yet another Christian gathering. When you are a persecutor and someone stands in your way without striking back, what do you do? for the powerfully built, fanatically dedicated, communist punisher of Christians, you start to wonder, what do these people believe? The nightmares began, and one day, while he was burning the propaganda the Christians had, he happened to be all alone, and he took the slightest peek at one before he threw it in the fire. He was completely unprepared for the words that hammered into his skull. So he slipped a small one into an inner pocket and his journey to Christ began. 
but he was ever driven by his former behavior. As was the Apostle Paul. In one of his later letters, an intensely personal letter to a young man he had mentored, he wrote, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The pain of our past can sometimes feel overwhelming. But Jesus gives us strength. The creator of all the world judges us faithful. His grace overflows on us. He came to save us, sinners though we are. Listen to what Paul wrote to that same young man in his very last letter, just before he died. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. For all who have loved his appearing. This is exciting truth. These are all great stories that we've read, every one. Every one of them is true. We found that some do come to Christ the easy way. Some are seeking. Some Jesus talks to directly. Some are skeptics. And some, some persecute believers before they join them in suffering. But I'll share another truth in common. All these men, other than Paul, shared the next three years with Jesus. And on the very last night in which he was able to teach them, just before he was betrayed, he dropped a bombshell. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. During that time that they were walking with Jesus, did they think they were pretty special because they figured out we should follow Jesus? Did they think that? Well, if they did, Jesus blew their misconceptions to smithereens right here. <laughs> and if this was true for them, that it was really Jesus that chose him, them, not them choosing him, what about us? For sure, we are not so great that we figured out we needed to follow Jesus. We're not that great. We're just like everybody else. Jesus chose us to follow him. Jesus appointed us to go and bear fruit in our behavior. Remember the fruit of the Spirit in our behavior, but also in evangelism, bringing others to Jesus, telling other people about Jesus. And then there's that great encouragement. He will ensure that the fruit you bear has staying power. It will stay. Like, eternally. 
forever. That's pretty exciting stuff. So, how did you come to Jesus? How did you? Who is it that God would have you lead to Jesus? Right now, who is it? There's someone in your life. God would have you lead to Jesus. And if you are one, if you know one who has not yet come to Christ, how far are you on your spiritual journey? That's what we need to ask. How far are you on your spiritual journey? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for for the various paths that we can take to your Son. The only way is Jesus. We might get to Jesus different ways, but we all go through Jesus to become your children. Children of the living God. Wow, is that something we do not deserve. That your Son chose us before time ever began. He wrote our names in the book of life. What an incredible privilege. We don't know why you chose us, but we are grateful. Help us, Lord, to bring others to you. Somehow, to show them the truth that if they can only admit their condition, they can believe. And then they will, they will want to commit their lives to your Son. Help us to bring that message to people, Lord. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.